Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to speak with great sensitivity on this topic which um, which touches us so profoundly. And we ask, Father, for those who are brokenhearted that you would uh, bring comfort to them. For those who are in sin, uh, that you would challenge and rebuke them and show them a better way to live than the way of rebellion. For those who are living obediently and are tired and um, and just need a word of encouragement, we pray that you would come and, and show them that and show them that they're not making any sacrifices, that they're actually living the good life you've given them. And so we pray that you give us, uh, you'd open our eyes to see the truth in your word and that you'd help us to receive it with obedience and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, we did a series on love, sex, and marriage called A Touchy Subject. And uh, during that series, uh, usually in churches during winter time, church attendance dips. And we did this series in the middle of winter, and church attendance peaked. Uh, such was the uh, interest in that series. And I don't... Um, I think that's kind of quite common. I remember when I was, I think I was 18 or 19, I was going on a road trip with my best friend, Steggs, and he was kind of drifting from Jesus at that time, uh, probably in this area he was drifting, and we're doing this road trip up to Byron Bay, and I got these tapes by Philip Jensen called Love, Sex and Marriage, and I just whacked the tape on in the car trip all the way to Byron Bay. And it was those tapes that really did bring my friend back to faith in the Lord Jesus. And I think that if you're new to Christ, and this, this maybe is one of your first times you've ever been in church, we're looking at this mini-series, Love, uh, love uh, Sex, Marriage and Singleness, and it's actually a good time to be here. Because though the world thinks there's nothing less attractive than the Christian sex ethic, actually if you spend some time looking at it, there is nothing more attractive in our world than the the teaching that God gives us in his word about marriage and sex. It saved my friend uh, literally some talks on this topic, and my hope is that it would help you in a similar way. In this room, some of us are married, and there are very few things... (laughs) there are very few things which are more important than our marriage. Uh, There are more more difficult things in our life than our marriage for some of us and more pleasurable things than our marriages for many of us. Some of us here are single and we're really happy that way. We enjoy the benefits, the freedoms, the advantages that that uh, gives us. And here God speaks in this chapter in a way that is very important because it's probably the only part in the Bible and probably the only part in our world today which goes into the advantages of being single. And in particular, we're going to look at that next week. Some of us here, though, we're single and we're terribly miserable uh, about it. We feel deeply lonely, unsatisfied, unhappy because of where we're at. And we... It's almost unthinkable to think that you could be happy, content, and satisfied as a single person. Some of us here have broken hearts uh, because of a relationship that has just soured, maybe recently, maybe even this week. And we come to this topic with very, very, very hurt. And it's very hard to sit here and think about this subject. Others in this room are divorced or widowed or they're in a process of separation and it is as though tonight this topic is opening up old wounds and running a hand over the scar tissue. And all this is to say we need God's help today as we talk about this. We need to be very careful that we don't hurt one another in what we say and how we say it. And we need to be careful lest we reject God's word and distort God's word because our feelings are so strong and we don't want to hear what God has to say. 
We have to talk about this topic carefully so that we're kind to one another, but we need to talk about this topic truthfully so that God's word can heal us, comfort us, direct us, challenge us, even assist us. God loves us. He knows what's best for us. He's given us marriage and singleness. Both are gifts. And we'll talk about more about why singleness is a gift next week. And so we need to come to terms with the things God is saying so that we can live in obedience to his word. There's no point coming here distorting and changing what he has to say. There's no point being here if that's why you're here, right? Might as well go home and write your own book, right? We're here to hear what God's got to say on this topic. And so we need to be very very carefully. And finally, as we come to 1 Corinthians 7, we need to understand the primary concern of this passage. It isn't marriage, singleness, and sex. That isn't the primary concern on this passage, which is the longest treatment on marriage, singleness, and sex anywhere in the Bible. But that's not the main concern at this point in this passage. The main concern here is the idea of holiness, uh, that's the great concern in this passage. If you've got your Bible, this is the great concern of the whole book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Go to chapter 1, verse 2. Paul tells who he's writing this letter to, and he says, this letter, it's to the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified, literally to those who've been made holy in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, to be his holy people. So this letter is written to people whom God has made holy and who are to be holy, live a holy life. And in chapter 3, we read that we are God's temple, that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And therefore, we're to live holy lives. You know, if you go into a Buddhist temple, what do you do? You take off your shoes the Bible says that you are a temple. It's as though you should be walking around everywhere without any shoes on. Right? You're on holy ground because God is in here as a church full of individuals, full of the Holy Spirit. And so you should just walk around without any shoes all the time, right? Because this is a holy place because God lives in you, not in this hall, but in you. What does holiness mean, though? It's one of those terrible religious words, isn't it, that kind of we all talk about, but we don't really know what it means. What does it mean? And I think we often think it means a perfect or a morally pure person, but that isn't entirely what it means, because in the Old Testament we're told that you can have a pot or a pan in the temple of God and it can be holy. Animals can be holy. Right? That, that's got to mean it's not talking about moral or immoral you know it's not like a pot sits there and goes yeah i've been really holy this week i haven't had any inappropriate sexual thoughts about people i haven't lied to anyone this week there's this pot sitting there saying that right so what does it mean that a pot can be holy doesn't mean that it's moral it means what does it mean what does holiness mean well what it means even in english is that it means holy W-H-O-L-L-Y. One writer says to be holy means to be wholly devoted to God. That's what it means to be set apart, to be devoted, to be wholly His. And to live, that's why a pot can be holy in a temple. It's holy there for the purpose of the service of God in the, that's why an animal can be holy. It's not moral or immoral. It's not holy or unholy, you know, it's not immod- it's set apart for God's use. I wonder whether you remember when Jesus cleansed the temple and made it holy. What did he do? He didn't get rid of the evil and immoral things from the temple. Uh, there were money changers there. They weren't wrong. You needed money changers in order to buy doves, pigeons, in order to sacrifice them. But they were distracting people from God. This temple was meant to be a house of prayer. And it was so noisy, so busy with animals pooing all over the place, mooing and barring, that Jesus comes in and he, he gets rid of everything that would distract them from focusing on God. He made it holy. He made it a place where you could be devoted to God, wholly devoted to God. I remember when I was dating Liz and, um, 
And I didn't really want to date her, to be honest, at first. <laughs> I was studying to be an accountant, and I measured the cost of having a girlfriend against the cost of going surfing in both time and money. I'm like, it's too expensive to have a girlfriend. It's going to take time away from me surfing. It's going to take money away from me in being able to go on surf trips. But then we fell in love, and I couldn't stop it, and we held hands one day underneath these ponchos at a Balmain Tigers game. It was... It was a lot of fun. but <laughs> And uh, finally, I started dating her, and I, and I realized you know, everything changed. I started spending money on a mobile phone to talk to her. I started spending money on petrol to drive to her. I mean, if you knew me back then, this is absolutely... My sister's laughing at me, right? You know, petrol was something you only put in the car to get to the beach, not to kind of detour by Balmain, okay? You know, I started uh, ironing my shirts, researching restaurants, uh, watching different kinds of movies. I stopped spending time with other girls. My life changed because I was becoming wholly dedicated to Liz. If I didn't, she'd say to me, Toby, what's going on here? You know, I'm meant to be yours, you're meant to be mine, and you're not kind of giving up anything else. What's going on? What does it mean to be holy? It doesn't mean being pure or perfect. It ends up meaning that. If you are holy, you'll become that. But it's something more basic. It means that you get rid of all the distractions and you focus wholly on God. It means you set your priorities. It means that you get rid of all the other things which were competing for God's interest in your life, which were his rivals, and you're like, no, I'm wholly dedicated to him right now. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be wholly his. I wonder if you remember the story of Joseph in Genesis. He was the chief attendant in Potiphar's house, uh, which was an amazing job, and he was a very handsome man. And he's there one day, and Potiphar's wife, she's got nothing to do. She notices how handsome he is. She comes up to him, and she starts begging him for sex. And he says, no, how could I do such an evil thing? And weeks and weeks go by. She's just begging and begging and begging him to have sex with her until one day all the other servants are out. And he's there by himself in the house and she comes up to him and grabs him, wrestles his cloak off him so that he's standing there starkers and no doubt she starts to undress and she's like, come on, let's go. And what does he do? He flees. Why? Because he had one priority, which is he was wholly belonging to God. How could he do such an evil thing? Notice chapter uh, chapter 6, the chapter before 7, verse 18. Do you notice what it says there? Paul says, flee sexual immorality, saying, be like Joseph, who knew that he was wholly belonging to God. Last week we looked briefly at chapter 6, which is dealing with sexual immorality, and Paul says there, flee. And no doubt he's referring to Joseph. This is what it means to be wholly devoted to God. At least just in your sex life, this is what it means. I mean, it means more than just sexual purity, but it doesn't mean less than that. And Paul's great point here, we didn't really get a chance to look at it last week because we heard that great testimony from Carmen and Rob, but I didn't really have a time to go here. But ultimately, Paul says in chapter 6 that you and I, if you're in Christ... You are the holy bride of Christ. You belong to him. And that sex and human marriage is just a metaphor for what we have with Christ. And therefore, if you are with Christ, if you are united to Christ, you remember this last week, you can't be united to a prostitute. You can't be going doing sexually immoral things. That would be to bring Jesus into that unholy situation. Don't do that. And so we come to chapter 7 and the topic is flee sexual immorality. Be holy, devoted to God. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 7 because it seems as though he's changing subject. He says, now for the matters you wrote about, sounds like he's kind of changing the subject, but as he goes on, it's very clear that he just keeps talking about sexual immorality. And, and, and the place of singleness, 
with sexual immorality, marriage, divorce, remarriage. And we can miss his central argument if we just focus on those topical things. His main point is that if you're a Christian, you ought to be wholly devoted to Christ, your spiritual bride. You ought to be holy. You ought to be pure. You've got to be in fellowship with him. And as a result, you should, you should run away like Joseph from any kind of sexual immorality. And so there is such a way, uh, we should act in such a way that our lives will be lives full of holiness, righteousness. God has freed us by washing us clean from our old way of life. One last thing in chapter 6, if you look there at verse 9 to 11, he says, do you remember the day when you were sexually immoral? Idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. And he says, that was the way you used to live. But, verse 11, you were washed. You were sanctified, which means you were made holy his. You were made holy. You belonged to him. And you were justified, that is, accepted by God in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of it. That's all in the past. You can't turn back to that again. That's what you've been freed from, forgiven for, and you've been made his now as his own, his very own bride, to be faithful to him. And therefore, you mustn't miss this point as we move on to talk about marriage and singleness His point is that you and I, if you're in Christ, you must be passionately concerned to live wholly for him, absolutely for him, devoted for the one who purchased you from the pit of hell and brought you back into his kingdom. Whatever else Paul's about to say to us, it will make absolutely no sense unless you're committed to living wholly for him. And so he he goes on and he says, well, holiness looks differently for two different groups of people. Uh, three different groups of people, in fact. But uh, the two groups of people mainly are the single and the married. And then he, he's got this other section on those who are separating. And he speaks about them as well. And he says, for those who are single, holiness will mean a life of celibacy. We love to joke about celibacy. We, we make movies about 40-year-old virgins and it's just silly, right? But in the Bible, that uh, it's, an, it's a good thing. Celibacy is a good thing. Uh, that is life without any sexual relationships. If you're a single person, that's what you're called to. But he says there's another option, and that is marriage. And that holiness within marriage is different from holiness within singleness. If you're going to be wholly devoted to God in singleness, you don't have sex. But if you're going to be wholly devoted to God in marriage, you must have sex and you must have sex regularly. We're going to see Paul say that. Now, this is, it's very interesting because Paul says holiness will mean no sexual immorality. If we're married, we mustn't be sexually immoral. If we're single and celibate, that is not having sex with anyone, then by default, you're going to be sexually pure, right? But if you're married, then you're going to be having sex. And there's almost a danger that, well, if you're having sex, then maybe you'll become sexually immoral. And therefore, there is a tendency for some people to see the celibate life as better. Look at verse 1 again. Uh, he says, For the matters you now have written about, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's quoting what they're saying. This isn't what he's saying at all. This is what they're saying. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And in the history of Christianity, this has continued, even though Paul's disagreed with this statement in this chapter. There's been a whole series of movements which has seen celibacy as the right way forward for the godly person. Celibacy is seen, if you want to be wholly devoted to God, then you can't have sex even if you are married, right? And so there are nuns and monks and priests living in monasteries in our world and they can be somehow seen as better Christians because they don't have sex. 
there have been a lot of people who have said, you know, we're the bride of Christ, therefore we can't be having sex with anyone, even if we are married. And if we're married, well, maybe we should just have sex for, for the sake of having kids. But really, that's about it, and you really shouldn't have much sex at all if you're married or you're not married. But what you've got to realize, Paul disagrees with that. And Paul says, no, there are two ways to be wholly devoted to God. Singleness and celibate, married and having great, regular, frequent sex. He says there are two ways to be holy. One way is single and celibate. The other is get married and have lots and lots of sex. In 1 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul, he says it's the doctrine of demons to forbid marriage and by default to forbid sex within marriage. It's not a good teaching, don't get married. He says, no, it's legitimate. Marriage is a way to be holy. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time now. That's the introduction, long introduction. It's going to be a long talk. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but his point is, and you've got to get this, the whole point of this chapter is about holiness. What does holiness look like as a single person, as a married person, and as a person who is struggling being married to someone else. So firstly, we're going to look at marriage, and then secondly, we're going to look at uh, divorce and remarriage. So two points. Let's jump in. So let's first of all look at marriage. Look again at verse 1, and we're going to read through. If it is, uh, it is a good thing for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, inverted commas, but, he says, but, but since sexual immorality is occurring, no, Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Celibacy is a way to be holy when you're single, but it's definitely not the way to be holy when you're married. You should be having sex if you're married. If you're married and you're celibate, that's not the way to holiness. It's a way to temptation and sin, he's saying. Because immorality is prevalent, he says, you should be married. That's his message. Notice here that therefore he accepts our sexual desires and that he accepts the sexual desires of both men and women. Frequently we don't accept our own sexual desires and somehow we think that we shouldn't have them and we curse that we've got them and rather than enjoying that we have sexual feelings, we kind of we wish we didn't, and we pray, God, take them away. You know, And yet here, Paul says, no, 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 he accepts them. The Bible accepts them as a good part of life. There's no need to feel guilty that you have sexual feelings. There's no need to feel you're like this lower spiritual kind of animal because you have powerful sexual feelings. God has created our bodies with our drives, with our feelings, and he expects us to he expects us to have them and if we don't have them there's probably something wrong with you physiologically and you should probably go to a doctor they're a good healthy god-given part of human life we must never feel guilty for those feelings that we have within themselves they are not they are not wrong and i think there's a danger among christians when they speak about the topic of masturbation right here we go <laughs> There's a danger when Christians talk about this topic as though it itself were, sin- were sinful. It isn't. God created your body with its sexual desires, with its pleasure sensitivities, with its ability to be stimulated, and the joy you get from your body is not an evil part of your life. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's daughter, or your neighbor's son, or your neighbor's husband, that's wrong. But the pleasure you experience in masturbation is not wrong. Sexuality is a gift from God. I mean, there's a lot more to be said on this, and you can ask me more questions about this, but I'm just going to drop that one on you, okay, and move on. (laughs) And so notice... Not only does he accept the sexual desires and feelings we all have, he accepts that they are a natural part for both men and women. He says that each man should have 
a wife, and each woman should have a husband because of sexual immorality, because of these powerful drives that we have. Frequently, we don't accept this either. Uh, I read one study just today that one-third of young women report that they regularly watch pornography. Because it's a more prevalent problem for men, the rhetoric is that it's just a man's problem. And if you're a woman and you struggle with this, you feel somehow abnormal, you, you, you feel like you're a nymphomaniac and that you're a slut or something like that. No. Again, Paul says men have sexual feelings and women have them and that God provides husbands and wives as a gift to us for the proper expression of our natural instincts for one another. You know, most people don't realize that there is an entire book in the Bible dedicated to the sexual love within marriage. It's called the book of Song of Songs. It's in the middle of your Bible. It's a series of songs a man and a woman sing to one another as foreplay before sex. And it's just completely, it makes us blush as we read it. It may surprise you that it's the woman and not the man in this part of the Bible who is the dominant voice throughout the song. She's the one who seeks, pursues, and initiates. And their language is so erotic that most translators will refuse to tell you what it actually means. Let me read to you some of it. Song of Songs... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let me read you Song of Songs chapter, uh, chapter 7 verse 6. This is at one place the man sings to his wife as foreplay. How beautiful you are, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and I'll take hold of the fruit. <laughs> and another point, she takes off her clothes And as he comes to her, she sings this. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved. And my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I mean, you don't need much of an imagination to work out what she's saying there. And it's without blushing. This is a wonderful part of human life. And the Bible says God accepts the fact that we have sexual desires. And he says that's why God's given us this thing called marriage for men and women. Notice then verse 3. We read, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to a husband. This makes clear that there is to be equality in our marital needs and provisions for one another sexually. Each is for the other. And inside marriage, sex is something that we provide. We fulfill our duty. We provide for one another in this area. We give a gift to our partner rather than seeing sex as something we take or extract from our partner. I spoke about pornography last week. You can get the um, the message on iTunes. But in pornography, I said that porn is rewiring our brains and it's training us to see sex as something we take or inflict rather than a gift we give. I mean, you just go back 200 years and you look at the language we used to speak about for sex. Uh, it's euphemistic but it's euphemistic in an emotionally connected way. We used to say that we, uh, sex was to know someone. That's often how the Bible refers to sexual activity. I, I, I know my wife. It's a beautiful metaphor. That's what sex is. I don't just, you know, we're not just doing the horizontal bungee jump, right? <laughs> it's an, it's, it's a, I'm knowing her. I'm seeing her right to the core, to know, to make love, to have intercourse, which which means communication, to have sexual relations, to lie with, to sleep with. Now, what do we say? The language is to bang, to root, to F, to get laid, to get off, to shag. Something we're either stealing or imposing on someone else. The Bible says, no, my body is there for the needs of my wife. My responsibility is to care for her needs sexually. Just as her body is there 
for my needs and her responsibility is to provide for me. Now he's thinking, I must not insist on my needs being met. This part of the Bible, it, 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 it's laying upon you obligations, but not rights that you can extract from the other person. If you are a married person, you have a responsibility and an obligation to give, but you can't insist on your own way with your wife. Notice verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Don't deprive each other. This is a radical countercultural word in the ancient world where the head of a household in that day didn't just have authority over his wife, but had authority over the body of all those who lived and worked within his household. And yet he is told this paterfamilias, the most powerful you know, uh, person in ancient society, he is told that he doesn't have authority over his body. Imagine a 40-year-old man in the ancient world who has so much power, who has the rights legally over the bodies of his slaves, being told that no, his 19-year-old wife has authority over his body. Remarkable. And notice that the authority over the body of our spouses is the authority to nurture, to care, to give enjoyment, and to enjoy it personally. But all claims to authority that enslave or abuse, they are a violation of God's purpose of marriage. This isn't, this isn't an invitation to be violent and to abuse those in your possession. They've been given to you, wife, your husband is given to you as someone to serve, love, and bring delight to, and likewise, men to your husbands. And so inside marriage, sex is something to be practiced, with couples providing for each other, and married partners should not be denying each other, except, look at verse 5, except perhaps by mutual consent. It can't be a unilateral decision by one partner to cease having sex. That's often what happens, but no, that can't be. If you stop having sex, it's got to be mutual. It must be agreed. And notice next, and for a time. It can't be permanent. It must be temporary. And then it must be for a particular reason so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. It must be temporary. It mustn't be open-ended. Hey, let's just give up sex for a little while and see how married life is. No, it's for a purpose, a particular reason. Our child is sick and we need to get on our needs and pray and maybe that's a reason we shouldn't be having sex right now. And then notice verse 5, then after you've prayed, make sure you come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you to sexual immorality so that you would be holy because of your lack of self-control. It's not just for a period of time, because it's you've got to have a, a purpose in mind as as well. Now, where am I? And so uh, let me just stop here and apply this uh, very, very briefly. What this means is that if you are a husband or a wife, you must not be depriving your spouse. What this means is that you should be more concerned with fleeing sexual immorality and helping your spouse flee sexual immorality. You should be more concerned about that than you are concerned for squeezing in that episode of television that you watch every night. This should be your highest priority to help your spouse flee sexual immorality and live a a life wholly devoted to God. And if you're not having sex regularly, temptation's going to enter into your marriage and you're not going to be wholly devoted to God. It's the doctrine of demons that forbids marriage and it's the doctrine of creation that teaches us to accept all of God's gifts with thanksgiving. We should find physical pleasure in giving and receiving in our relationships which bond us together as husband and wife. We're not to deny one another. 
And there's this temptation, I think, that, well, let's abstain for spiritual reasons. And sometimes you can have some spouses with lower sex drives who look down on the other partner who has a much higher sex drive and they look down on them as though they are just an animal and unspiritual. And Paul is saying, no, that is not true. A healthy sex life in marriage is a holy thing. It helps you be holy, devoted to God. And so in our marriages in this church, I do hope and trust that among the marrieds, there is lots and lots of great, pleasurable, joyful, generous sex going on here. Sex is a valid reason to enter into marriage. And it should be frequently, carefully, generously, and joyfully given. Now notice, and maybe I'm going to get a bit controversial here, but notice that sex, therefore, is a completely valid and sufficient reason to get married. Uh, It's not the only reason you should get married. I'm horny, let's get married, right? It's not the only reason you should get married. Uh, But it is a valid reason. And the world will mock Christians... Well, the world will continue to mock 19-year-old, 20-year-old Christians for getting married young because they're horny, right? And Christians will mock Christians for getting married young. I mean, I think this is a danger for this church, which is full of 30-year-olds who are single, which is a great thing. We're talking about singleness next week. But we must not mock this completely valid reason to get married. When I marry people and I read the uh, the service of marriage, the Anglican service of marriage, uh, in that there are three reasons f- given for marriage, procreation, partnership, and the avoiding of sexual immorality. Procreation. Most people don't believe that anymore. Most people think kids are optional to marriage, but in a former generation and, and in the Bible, children were seen as a blessing from the Lord, which is why Christians have kids. Procreation, partnership, well, that's the great reason for marriage today. That's why we're opening up to gays. Uh, That's why our society wants to open it up to gays, because the reason for marriage, the only reason we kind of think, we have sex outside of marriage in society. It can't be for sex, can't be for kids, but it is for partnership, and this is one of the reasons why many people today want to open it up to gays. And we're all for this. Everyone's for this. The, uh, the marriage, uh, the idea of mutual help, supporting of one another, the avoidance of loneliness. I mean, we love this. But then thirdly in the prayer book service on marriage, so if you get married by me, I read this. Quite awkwardly and rudely in the marriage ceremony, It says, well, marriage is also given so that you can avoid being sexually immoral. It's for the proper expression of natural instincts. And you may say, well, that's a lousy reason to get married. You just can't control yourself so you get married. But this is actually what Paul's arguing for here. Verse 2, verse 5, verse 9, that because of temptation to sin sexually, because of our sexual desires which are God-given, you should get married. Look at verse 9. Because of sexuality, we should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn, either burn in hell or to burn with passion. Not sure which one it is. Sexual immorality is a sufficient reason to get married. It's a good reason, a right reason. You have strong sexual instincts The Bible's saying here you should be working towards finding someone to marry so that you can express those proper instincts in that proper relationship. Our desire for sexual expression and our desire as Christians to avoid sexual immorality should come together and bring us to the point where we make the compromise necessary to get married. And I say the compromise because marriage is a compromise. It's a massive compromise. That's why young, foolish people get married all the time. Right? When you get older, it's much harder 
to make that compromise because you know what's happening as you go into it. It's a massive compromise because no longer am I going to run my life my own way. I gave that up when I became a Christian. Uh, but now I not only take on the Lord Jesus Christ directing my life, but I take on my wife telling me what I should do with my life. And it's a massive compromise. I lose my own personal freedoms. I'm far less self-sufficient. But the older you get, the harder it is to make that compromise because, because the more self-sufficient you become. And the more self-sufficient you become, the lonelier it gets, doesn't it? And there's the challenge. I live alone so that I can live life the way I want to live it, but I wish there was someone else around. But if I have someone else around, well, it means I can't do the things that I want to do anymore and I've kind of got to fit in with their life. It's the need and desire for sexual expression and the Christian concern to flee sexual immorality and be holy, which should challenge us to make the compromise necessary to get married. But people, and many of you, you're still waiting for the perfect mate. That absolutely, perfectly compatible person. Uh, the per- and what that means is the person who wants to do exactly what I want to do the ultimate compatible person, the one who just does exactly what I want them to do. And you're still waiting for that person, and you're never going to find that person. <laughs> All right? And you're still waiting for them, and you know, in your own life, you're waiting for the time you're economically secure and ready to get married, where your career is at a point to be sufficiently established so that you're able to provide adequately. You know, society makes it so difficult for people to get married these days. We, um, you know, for teenagers, we feed them up and we exercise them up so that they're sexually mature at a very, very young age. And then we say, no, you've got to get a university education. Then you've got to have a career. You've got to be financially independent. And then maybe when you're past 30 years old, then you're ready for sex in a stable, committed marriage. It's so unreasonable and ridiculous. And we've made it very, very difficult for each other. See, these two things the Bible's saying at this point, the desire that we have for sexual relationships, which wells up inside of us, and at the same time our Christian desire to flee sexual immorality, these two things should push us toward entering into the relationship of marriage. And so... Uh, what that means is you just can't stand back and wait. If, if you have these strong desires, you really should be actively pursuing someone. This is God's provision for your needs, and you shouldn't deprive yourself of God's provision to your sexual desires. It's much more important that you avoid sexual immorality than it is for you to find the perfect person to marry. I think we get it the other way around in our society. I think we think it's relatively unimportant if we slip up from time to time sexually, and I think we overstate the importance of finding the right person to marriage. It's actually the other way around. You should be wholly devoted to the Lord and therefore wholly committed to not slipping up sexually at all. And therefore that should push you toward making the compromises necessary to get married. Okay, that's marriage. I'm going to spend a little bit more time secondly now on divorce and remarriage. And we see that in verses 10 to 16, and we'll go through this section a little bit quicker. There are two groups addressed in this passage. Uh, in the divorce section, if you look at verse 10 to 16, he starts out by talking about, well, what if you're a Christian and you're married to another Christian and it just gets really, really hard? First of all, Christians, two Christians married to each other. And that's the way it should be, right? That we shouldn't be intermarried. We shouldn't be marrying people who have different faith commitments. Well, what should you do, verse 10, if you're married to someone 
and you're just finding it really dif- difficult and they're Christians. And verse 10 tells us not to separate. It tells us it addresses it to wives and it also addresses the husbands. And it says to both of them that you should not separate. And if you do separate, then you should remain single or be reconciled to your husband or to your wife. That's what the husband and wife are to do. It's very important, you see, every person who gets married goes, it's so common and Paul has to address this. Every person who gets married goes through that moment in time when they think they've made a mistake. And they've wondered whether it was the right girl, the right guy, or whether they were suited or not cut out for it or something like that. And so Paul has to address this. You know, for Liz and I, that moment which happens in every marriage, for her it was two days in, (laughs) for me it was three days in, right? And we're on this stupid island in northern Queensland full of birds. I'll tell you about it one day. But every couple goes through this. This very situation, you know, we get to the point where we're like, oh, this, this, this sucks. What are we doing? And we think about leaving one another. You know, people say to me, it's a big risk getting married young because you might marry the wrong person. But here's the, here's the thing. You always marry the wrong person. You always marry the wrong, because if the right person is someone who is easy to love, you always marry the wrong person because no one is easy to love, it takes a lot of work to love one another. And what's more is, even if you marry the right person in 2015, just give it a while and they will change. And they'll become the wrong person to be married to. So you never marry the right person. And so don't worry about the risk so much of marrying the wrong person. You know, God has a person for you to marry if you are going to marry. You may never marry, and so there is no person that you will marry. And we're going to talk about that next week. But for those who will marry, there is one person whom God would have you be married to. And you will know exactly who that person is immediately after you make your promises to them. (laughs) Not before, because before they might die on the car on the way to the wedding. I mean, it's happened. I mean, sorry to be so tragic at this point, right? But that's happened, right? The only way for you to know who the right person for you to be married to is one second after you've made your vows to one another. And you say to me, well, that isn't very much help to me, Toby. I'd like to know before rather than after. If you say that, that's because you don't understand marriage. You see, we we think that if I just get the right person, then we'll we'll ride off into the sunset together and we'll live happily ever after. But that totally misunderstands the nature of our selfishness. You're going to marry someone who's selfish. There's never going to be a ride off into the sunset. It's always going to be hard. Marriage is always going to be about working hard to love one another, be kind to one another forgive one another because they're going to hurt you. You're never going to marry the right person. And therefore, maybe you need to kind of lower your standards in your search for a spouse. The key to a loving marriage is not finding the right person. The key to a loving marriage is being the right person and making the right commitment. It's all about the commitment that's what makes a happy marriage because no matter who you marry, they're going to annoy you from time to time. And the only thing that will get you through is your vows to one another. Finding the right person is not the key element at all. It's a misunderstanding of marriage. What you need to know is that the person you're married to is God's choice for you and you're not to leave them. You're not to leave them. Commitment is the key, and that once you enter into that, into that relationship that you're committed to, you've got to work on it and work on it. You marry for better or worse. There's no back door, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. There's no way out. You know, what does it mean? What does worse mean in your marriage vows? You only discover what worse is after you've been married to them. 
if we knew what worse was before we get married, we wouldn't get married. None of us would get married. None of us would take that kind of risk. We discover it afterwards what worse means. And we've got it. What we've got to do is be committed to make it work even in those worse moments. And that's what makes a healthy, happy, and long marriage. People don't so much as fall out of love in marriage. They fall out of repentance, of saying, I'm sorry, we screwed up, let's work at it again. When people stop doing that, that's when marriages end. And so Paul says, you've got to work at it. There's, there is no, no way. But what happens if you do and it just gets really tough to bear? Um, just at this point, before I move on, I encourage, if, if there's ever physical violence, so, and that enters into the relationship, you need to get outside help straight away. And you should get out as quick as possible. And if you've got no one else to speak to, come and talk to Steph or myself or Liz or someone else in this church. But what happens if it's just hard work and it's just not working out? What do you do? Verse 10, the answer is a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. If we are Christians and we're marrying as Christians then we marry and we stay married. If we can't live together, we're just driving each other bonkers, then we separate, but we don't remarry. And if we say, well, I'm really struggling to live on my own, then you get back together again. That's the compromise, our sexual desire. If you separate, you will, in the end, hopefully God will bring you back together again. That's what that sexual relationship is designed to do, to help you work out those issues apart so that you can come together again. Friends, this is very hard, especially when your partner deserts you and leaves you high and dry. But if you're married as Christians, you're living as Christians, you've got to work it out. You've got to work out that relationship, and it's awfully painful. But you've got to work. You've got to work at it. That's what it means to be wholly devoted to the Lord. Now, I do think it's different if your partner walks out and goes and lives with someone else. I think that that moves us into Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus talks about a concession for divorce. Uh but, you know, even even then you see the Pharisee rises up in ourselves and we say, well, I saw them in a cafe with some other person. They've left me. Now I'm free to go and do whatever I want. Our aim must be to make it have a go at our marriages. And it's only when our marriage is totally destroyed by the other person, divorcing us, remarrying someone else, that we can really say it's over, it's done, and you're free to marry, remarry. I think you're open to a new life there. But if you're a Christian and they're a Christian, you've got to work at it. Only if they've trampled on it, destroyed their commitment, gone off with someone else, only then, I think, are you free to remarry. Well, what about, secondly there, what if you're a Christian and you're married to an unbeliever? That's the next category he deals. Look at verse 12. To the rest I say this, not I but the Lord. And he goes on to describe this mixed marriage situation. And uh, and there's this moment uh, where there can be real unhappiness because you disagree about the fundamentals of life if you're a Christian and they're not, uh, which is Jesus. You love Jesus, they don't, and you're just struggling to live with this other person. But there can also be great love and human relationship between a Christian and a non-Christian. Not all intermarriages are necessarily miserable and unhappy. It's not, not, it's not God's will that you'd enter into one. But if you do enter into one, you are married. So you've got to stay married. And so you mustn't initiate divorce. Look at verse 12. If any brother has a wife, not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. We mustn't initiate uh, divorce just because we've become a Christian and they're not. 
our unbelieving spouse, we go on to read, is set apart and devoted to God because of our relationship. But what if the unbelieving spouse doesn't want to continue? And there are many stories about this. People become a Christian, they go home, they tell their spouse of become a Christian, and they walk out. What do you do then? Well, Paul says, verse 15, he says, let it happen. Because you'll notice we've been called to live at peace. Verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The believer or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. If they want to go, let them go. You're not bound in that situation, and I take it that that means you're free to remarriage. If they've walked out on this marriage because of Christ and destroyed the commitment between the two of you, then you're you're free to remarry. But but don't look for that. You should stay married if that is possible. If you're married. You've given your body and life to this person. You can't just break that without breaking yourself and breaking your commitment. And God's concern for your life, if you're married and you're struggling, that you would be wholly devoted to him and model his commitment to you in your marriage to that other person. If you're single, we're going to look at this more next week, but what it means to be wholly devoted to God in singleness means you wouldn't be having sex with someone. And if you have strong desires, you should be moving towards marriage because marriage is God's provision for those sexual desires that you have. Now, I'm running out of time, and I do want to give you guys uh, some opportunity for questions. I'm just going to take my phone off of, um, okay, a bunch of questions. Does anyone have a question that they're willing to venture forth first? And then I'll go to some of these. Ainsley. Mm. <laughs> um, what does it mean to lower your standards? Yeah, good question. Well, um... I mean, this was my relationship with Liz. One of the reasons I didn't date her very early on was because I wanted a girl who would come to the beach and surf with me. And Liz hates the beach. She hates the sand. She never, she hates, you know, it's just like I couldn't fit her into the standards I was having. And then I needed to reassess my standards in life and work out, no, what I'm actually after is a woman of noble character who's gentle, peaceable, who loves the Lord. And in, I mean, Liz is remarkable. She got up tonight because she cares about the, the married couples here and she wants you to come to this marriage enrichment day. She hates getting up the front. I fell in love with that. She'll do hard things for the sake. I, what, the thing which made me uh, really want to marry her was there was this church plant that happened up at, uh, near the entrance on the central coast. Uh, he was a friend who planted the church, and uh, she said to him, I'll drive up every Sunday for a year to run kids' church up at that church. Every Sunday she'd drive up to Berkeley Vale on the central coast just to teach kids about Jesus. And I'm like, there's nothing more attractive than that. That's what I mean. Are they godly? I mean, I'm not going to look so great in 20 years. You know, it doesn't matter who you are in this room. You may be the hottest person in this room. I was going to pick on some hot people, but I won't. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Gareth. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it doesn't matter how hot you are. You're not going to look so great in 20 years. I mean, I'm, I'm after for something that's going to last for the next 50, 80 years. And so that's what I mean by lower your standards. Go for godliness. But you got to... You gotta work out what are your standards doing? For me, I was this surfer and I, I had to realize that surfing at the beach with me is not that important in my life. And for some of you, you gotta change your standards. They're just done wrong. Um, yeah. Any other questions? Let me take, uh, two from here. Uh, should have got someone else to do this. 
Can I can I give this to you, Mike, and you choose? I'll take one more question from the floor, and uh, and then you decide one or two questions. Phoenix. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, watch my stance. This area of Sydney uh, has had a very difficult relationship with Christians in the past, and so we've made uh, we've made a decision never to speak publicly about homosexuality, same-sex marriage in this public forum, where we think. It's such a sensitive topic in this area that it's got to be spoken about privately uh, with love and gentleness. And the delay in which I I delayed in answering this is because I was working out, is that how I want to play it right now? And it is. I don't want to talk about uh, same-sex. I I think we need to be talking about this topic. Uh, But the reality is, as a Sunday service... We don't want uh, many people, we want people in our community coming in here. And this is a very sensitive topic, and I just don't want to uh, inflame this subject. I want them hearing and listening to who Jesus is first before they come to terms with that topic. And if they do want to wrestle with that topic, I want to do it privately, not publicly. So that's where it's at. We, we, we were hoping to run, instead of the dating night, in a week on next Monday, we're going to do that night on homosexuality. It's not a public forum. See, anyone can walk in here, but that night's kind of by invitation only. We were going to do it there and then. It was going to be a more controlled environment. Instead, we've made the decision that dating's a more relevant topic, but we'll come back to homosexuality and same-sex marriage in a more private setting in the future. I hope that makes sense. But, um, Mike, are there any questions? Okay. Yep. Um, so, so you mentioned that it's not so much questions, I mean, from my own experience, masturbation is kind of like, it's hard to step off. It seems like it's mm. almost impossible to separate it from love. Yeah. So, um, there are a few questions around that. Yeah. And if you cannot, then you should not, okay? Because you should be fleeing sexual immorality, okay? But uh, here's the view I take, and it's a view. Uh, that uh, I see taught by Philip Jensen, a former dean of the Anglican Church in the cathedral in Sydney. And his, his view, and I, I think this is true and right and proper, is that there, there is, of course, nothing wrong uh, with uh, the personal bodily pleasure sensations from stimulation in your own body. And that in the process of that happening, it is completely appropriate that you would be thinking sexually about a member of the opposite sex. In fact, if you're not thinking about breasts and a female body and you're a male uh, and you're masturbating, there's something wrong with you. You can't just think about you know, um, mathematics while doing that. <laughs> that. That would be weird, right? You are designed, if you're a male, to respond and be attracted to the female form. And so my encouragement is to evoke that image, but make sure you're not evoking that image for your neighbor's wife or daughter. And I think in that moment you should be longing for a wife. It should be a moment of longing. There is something missing from masturbation, which is sex is given to us uh, in order to bring two people together in lifelong covenant marriage. There's something absent from that, but it's not a wrong experience in itself. There's something missing from it. It's like eating a meal by yourself. Should you ever eat a meal by yourself? Of course, but there is something missing there. I mean, you may think, that's too far-fetched, Toby. But no, meals, women to eat with one another, in fellowship with one another. doesn't mean you don't eat by yourself from time to time. And so that's what I would say, that the the sexual imagery about another man, another woman, with a name and a face that you know their phone number of, that's wrong. But the uh, the um, the enjoyment of thinking about the, the female or the male form or the, the closeness 
of the relationship of the marriage that you so eagerly desire, there's nothing wrong, in my view, with that. And um, yeah, anyway, there you go. We're going to finish on that note. Fantastic. Um, it's very hard to ask more questions on that topic, isn't it? Um, to be honest, I don't see really any, Ben can come up here, I don't see really anyone talking about that topic. But And so as a result, I keep bringing it up in church life. And here's, here's why I keep bringing it up, because I, I, just, I see Christians downplaying the goodness of sex when they say masturbation is wrong. And so that's what, why I've come to this view, that sex is wholly appropriate, that sexual pleasure is wholly appropriate individually if you're single, and in marriage, it's entirely good as well. Let me pray, and then the band's going to... don't know how you sing after that question, but let, let's go. Heavenly Father, we um, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who, um, who, who sanctified us, that is, made us wholly his, that we belong to him, we are his bride, he is our husband, and Father, it's our desire as Christians to give our lives in holy devotedness to him. And as a result, Father, we pray that we would flee sexual immorality, that that would look like uh, celibacy as singles, not having sexual relationships with those we're not married to, and that it would look like healthy, joyful, generous sex lives within marriage. Father, for those who are struggling in marriage, who are separated and working out what to do next, We pray that uh, we would encourage one another to keep working at loving each other, but that you'd give us the grace and wisdom to recognize when that relationship just has been trampled on by the other person and is dead and when we're free to move on. We pray that you'd help us to be kind and gentle and loving as we talk about these things together so that Jesus would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.